Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Good to be back. Uh, I was here preaching uh, several months ago last, and uh, you had just been away the week before, I think, for your, uh, your house party, your weekend away, and uh, half the seats were empty. Uh, there was a bit of a COVID thing, um, and uh, it's lovely to be back, and uh, the, the rows are full, and uh, we're all here together. Why don't you join me in praying, ask God that he would speak to us this morning by his spirit, and that we would listen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you now. We rejoice to be in your presence. We give you praise and thanks that you, our great God, show your glory not only in the immensity of your power, but also in the limitless riches of your grace. Thank you for the gospel that has been proclaimed in all the world and the light of the gospel that has shone into our hearts so that we might see your glory and your goodness in the face of the Lord Jesus. So shine that light into our hearts today, we pray. Teach us and encourage us again that we might live our lives as disciples of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in a way that reflects and declares to the world the goodness of your grace, so that your name might be hallowed and glorified. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a delight to be with you. It's a particular delight to be invited to preach the Word of God. And it's a particular, particular delight for me to be asked to speak on a passage from 1 Corinthians, which I have to confess is one of my favourite books of the New Testament, if you're allowed to have favourites. This is not a topical sermon this morning about marriage and singleness. Uh, it's a talk rather about life in the last days, in the shortened times between Christ's death and his resurrection and his return. Uh, so it's not just a topical sermon about marriage and singleness, but it's a passage that has a lot to say about those topics. So I want to speak this morning about the present crisis and the shortened times, marriage, singleness, and life in the last days. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is, of course, if you've been around in churches for a while, you'll know one of the chapters that we often turn to when we want to give a talk on marriage and singleness, uh, especially um, when we want to give a talk on singleness. And there's good reason for that, because Paul is responding within this chapter of 1 Corinthians to a number of questions the Corinthians appear to have asked, um, or views and theories they seem to have put to him in a letter that a number of the congregation members have sent to Paul. The Corinthians, it seems, some of them, a small group, I suspect, of elite and educated members of the Corinthian assembly, have come up with the idea of some sort of celibate marriage, in which husbands and wives among the elite members of the Corinthian church are stepping back from a full sexual relationship within marriage so that they can do things that they consider to be more spiritual, like fast and pray. And engaged couples within the congregation are finding themselves under some sort of pressure and community uh, compulsion to postpone or cancel the engagement and to pull out of marriage so that they can remain celibate and single for the sake of spirituality. And people who are part of the church but married to a non-Christian husband or a non-Christian wife 
are finding themselves under community pressure from a group within the congregation to consider leaving their husband or leaving their wife, who's not a believer, so that they won't be defiled or spiritually inhibited by their partner's unbelief. That's the theory that is becoming influential amongst some of the elite and educated and influential members of the Corinthian church. And they have put that theory to Paul as one of a number of questions and ideas in a letter that they have sent to him, to which Paul turns in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 as he begins responding now to the matters about which you wrote to me, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. That's the theory that has been put to Paul, it seems, in the Corinthians letter, and Paul isn't buying it. In fact, Paul pushes back quite vigorously against it. He himself is single, um, either no longer married or perhaps never married. And he himself is very positive about the single life, uh, much more positive than a lot of 21st century Christians are. But his positivity about singleness in the Christian life does not rest upon the same theories and ideas as the ideas that are becoming current and influential in the Corinthian church. So Paul responds to the, their letter affirming some things but pushing back very hard against others. He insists, verse 28, in the reading we heard from a moment ago, he insists that those who are engaged are not sinning if they go ahead and get married. In fact, in some circumstances, that is absolutely the right thing to do. He insists that those who are married should absolutely honour their marriage vows, regardless of whether their partner is a Christian or not a Christian, verses 10 to 16. And he is clear that being married involves, as an integral element, not an optional extra, an integral element, the sexual relationship, mutual and freely given, that a husband and wife share with one another, verses 1 to 7. The, the gist of all that was what you covered last week, right, if you were here. The general principle underneath all of that in the first half of the chapter is what Paul says in a kind of summary formula in verse 24, the final verse of last week's passage. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them or a little more literally in whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. You see, the call of God to follow Jesus, the call of God that comes to us in the gospel, is not for most of us a call to leave the ordinariness of everyday life and the situation we were in when we were converted so that we can step out of it into some more exalted, more spiritual sounding situation. For most of us, the call that comes to us in the gospel, the call to follow Jesus, is a call to stay in the situation we were in, in the situation God has placed us in, 
and there remain with God. Verse 24. Brothers and sisters, in whatever situation you were in when God called you, there remain with God, sanctifying the ordinary by the presence of the Spirit. Do you see? That's the big idea that Paul has been pressing home in the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And that's the summary that he lands on in chapter 7, verse 24. But it's not the only thing that Paul has to say within this chapter. And marriage and singleness are not the only issues of life that Paul wants to speak about. And within these middle paragraphs, these crucial middle paragraphs of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17 at the end of last week's passage and continuing on down to verse 31 in the beginning of this week's passage, in verses 17 to 31 in the critical central sections of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul locates those issues of decisions about marriage and singleness within a larger frame, a much, much larger frame. And he situates them alongside all of the other lifestyle-shaping decisions that we make. All the other decisions we make about life in the world and the way in which we organise our involvement in all the ordinary, everyday business of this earthly life. The decisions we make about marriage and singleness become within these paragraphs, verses 17 to 31, a kind of paradigm or parable for the decisions that we make for the whole of life. So if you're here this morning thinking through big decisions about relationships and marriage and singleness, then this is a chapter that speaks to those questions and decisions, absolutely. But if you're here today as someone who made those decisions years ago or who isn't really at a point of making them yet, then don't tune out. Uh, this chapter is for you as well. It's a chapter for all of us this morning. Paul locates those decisions about singleness and marriage as disciples of Jesus amongst all of those decisions of the Christian life within the larger frame of the whole way in which we see the days we live in. And he has three things to say about it. Three big points to emphasise within this chapter. The first is the one we've already looked at, the one that was the bottom line of verses 1 to 24 and the primary focus of last Sunday morning sermon. Ordinary, everyday life with its mundane and secular responsibilities and loves and pleasures and tasks and relationships is not a situation to get out of as Christians, escaping out of the world, but a situation to remain in with God. The Corinthian spirituality is an escape spirituality. Uh, this idea of celibate marriage or get out of your marriage for the sake of a more spiritual life or stay out of marriage and stay single perpetually so that you can be pure and spiritual, Paul says, that's an, in a sense, that's an escape 
spirituality. Paul's spirituality is an incarnational spirituality. There remain with God. The Spirit sanctifies the ordinary and makes it a sphere in which the beauty of God and the glory of the gospel are revealed. That's the first point that Paul has to make. The God who saves us and sanctifies us and calls us in the gospel is the same God as the God who created us and created the world that we live in and who created it good and who created all the ordinary earthly things like food and work and sex and childcare. And those ordinary things that make up the stuff of daily life Monday to Saturday are precisely the context in which we are called to serve him and to manifest his presence and his beauty. That's the first point. And that's last week's sermon. The second and the third point, however, are my points for this week. The second and the third point Paul makes in this chapter are what he goes on to speak about in verses 25 to 40 in the second half of the chapter, starting with the two critical paragraphs that will be our primary focus this morning because these paragraphs in verses 25 to 31 are the place where Paul makes the main points, the big ideas that he then just unpacks in a few examples across the remaining paragraphs. Because ordinary life for the Corinthians as is the case for us as well. Ordinary life in which we serve God and glorify Him, ordinary life is not always a stable, tranquil, ordered and orderly system, is it? From time to time, disruptions happen and life is thrown out of joint. That has been the case for us, for all of us, over these last couple of years in obvious, unsettling, destabilizing ways. And it was also, it seems, the case for the Corinthians. The late 40s and early 50s of the first century, uh, the years leading up to when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 54 AD, were not easy times to live within the Roman Empire. Uh, there were worse years later in the century, especially if you were Jewish or if you were a Christian, but the early 50s already had their share of instability. The Roman historian Tacitus, writing a few decades later, looked back on the year 51 and described it as having been an ominous year, featuring earthquakes in various parts of the empire and subsequent panic in which the weak were trampled underfoot. There was also, once again, a shortage of grain due to bad harvests in Egypt. And as a consequence, famine and food chain disruptions all around the Mediterranean basin. All of this, Tacitus writes, was taken by the general population as a supernatural warning. And the famines and the food supply chain disruptions appear to have recurred intermittently across the next couple of years. In 53, they happened again, and in 54, the year of 1 Corinthians. This was the context in which Paul began organising the collection for the poor in Judea that he 
goes on to speak about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And it's also the context, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, in which Paul expresses the extent of his distress and dismay about the way in which the wealthier Corinthian Christians, when they meet to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the community meal of the church, were going ahead and eating and drinking to their heart's content, not waiting to share their table and their food with their poorer brothers and sisters. And it's the context here in chapter 7, verse 26, in which he speaks about the present crisis. With all its instability and uncertainty, that those who are not yet married, those who are not yet married and making decisions about marriage might need to take into account as they make their decision about whether to go ahead with their marriage plans, whether to proceed with the arrangements and with the engagement. Paul's intention at this point, uh, he goes out of his way to say, Paul's intention at this point is not to lay down the law. He says in verse 25, I have no command from the Lord in this matter. And his purpose in this part of the chapter is, he says, simply to offer some advice, to give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. You see, a time of crisis, uh, like a famine or a war or a pandemic, can force simplicity on you in a way you'd never anticipated. We were invited to a wedding, I remember, back in March 2020, Uh, in the earliest months of the pandemic uh, that was scheduled to go ahead on the Saturday of that week in March, if you can remember it, that week when all the rules kept on changing. (laughs) On Monday there was one set, then on Wednesday there was another, and by Friday they changed again. And the plans for the wedding went from plan B to plan C to plan D to plan E across the week. And the whole thing kept getting smaller and kept getting simpler. Uh, We ended up watching the wedding Uh, through Facebook, uh, through a live feed, like almost every other part of life in the weeks that followed. You see, a crisis forces simplicity. It forces you to define what counts as essential services. You ever remember that? It compels you to think about which things you really do need and which things you should do without. And Paul says to the Corinthians... Given the present crisis and all of its uncertainty and instability, there are good reasons, good reasons why, verse 28, you might decide as a believer in Corinth in 54 AD, good reasons why in the present crisis you might decide to avoid or to postpone the extra load of trouble and care and responsibility and exposure to risk and grief and cost and load that marriage and children involve. And the same thing is true by extension about all sorts of other decisions you might otherwise have made in more ordinary times, like buying a house or starting a business or going away on a trip. When you're in the midst of a famine or a pandemic or a war, you do things differently, right? But what about when the crisis is over? 
What do you do when the plague has passed? When the grain price goes back to normal? What do we do as the pandemic finally begins to taper down, it seems God willing, toward an end? As all the last restrictions are peeled back one by one and ordinary life begins to resume again. What do we do in this season? That's the kind of question that Paul goes on to speak about in verses 29 to 31 in the second paragraph of our passage this morning. Because the advice Paul wants to give the Corinthians within this chapter, the mindset that he wants them to think with as they learn as a community to think with the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. The mind Paul wants the Corinthians to think with and the advice that he wants to give to them aren't confined just to the time of the present crisis. There's something more important. There's something more enduring that Paul wants to say to the Corinthians that will continue to apply, verse 29, from now on about the way in which they live in the world, not just in the midst of the present crisis, but permanently until Christ returns as normal life resumes. Normal life in first century Corinth was in in many ways a lot like normal life in 21st century Sydney. You might have noticed some of that as you've worked your way through the first seven chapters of 1 Corinthians already in this series. Normal life in 1st century Corinth was competitive, materialistic, uh, globally connected, socially stratified, status-obsessed, and appearance-conscious. Roman Corinth was, as one uh, second-century writer put it, Aelius Aristides put it, the common emporium of Europe and Asia, the market and the festival of the Greeks. That was the city in which the Corinthians Paul is writing to lived their lives. And for some at least amongst the Christians in Corinth, a whole lot of the elements of that normal Corinthian lifestyle had been just carried over unquestioningly into their lives as Christians in Corinth. They were in the city and of the city and shaped and molded by the city, uncritically, unquestioningly. So those with money and possessions and status within the congregation wanted to maintain them and to display them so that they purchased with their wealth the honour and the status that they felt they were entitled to. And those without those things, or without as much as their neighbours had of those things, wanted to climb the ladder, to get ahead, to compete for possessions and position in much the same way as every other Corinthian in the city competed. Do you see? They were in the city and of the city shaped by the ethos of that competitive, materialistic, status-conscious Roman Corinthian culture. And we, I suspect, are not 
entirely different. Our culture tells us to compete and consume. The two basic, basic operating system values of consumer capitalist late 21st century Western culture, right? Compete and consume. And to establish and project our very identity by the way in which we do those things. We speak and sing on Sunday morning about following Jesus. But a lot of the time, Monday to Saturday, our eating and drinking and buying and selling, the whole shape of the way we live the texture out of our daily lives is shaped a whole lot more simply by what is normal in our culture than by the songs we sing on Sunday. Do you see? But Paul is, Paul is advocating in this letter to the Corinthians for a spirituality that is about much more than the songs we sing on Sunday morning. It's about chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, being done to the glory of God. It's about the whole of life being shaped by the gospel of the glory of the grace of God in Christ. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, urging them at every point within this letter to pattern the ordinary stuff of their lives and the big decisions and the small by the way in which they respond to the gospel and understand the times they live in. And a crisis like the crisis that had disrupted the ordinary rhythms of life in first century Corinth in the 50s, a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic that we have passed through over the last couple of years, dreadful as it is, has also brought into our lives a kind of God-given opportunity. A good crisis should never be wasted, yep. It has interrupted the ordinary patterns of life. It pressed the pause button for months at a time on so much of what we had grown used to as normality. It broke the rhythms and disturbed the patterns of our lives. And it gave to us the chance to stop or at least to slow down and to ask the question, as the crisis comes to an end and when the crisis is over, will we let our lives simply snap back or slump back into the ordinary shape of the old normal before the pandemic? Or will we make some lasting changes where there are options available to us, where we have some agency in this game, where there are, where there are decisions that we get to make, to that extent at least, what will our lives look like in the years ahead? What will the future look for us? Not just in the present crisis, but also from now on, verse 29. Paul writes, verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, or better translated, and I say this also, brothers and sisters, because this is a new point, not just an explanation of the previous point. And I say this also, brothers and sisters, that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not 
engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Do you see? The world we live in, this present material worlds we inhabit is a good world made by God for our pleasure and for his glory. We can live in it, serve in it, participate in it in all kinds of ways in the ordinary stuff of life, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, working and resting, laboring, enjoying, consuming, giving, share, all of that stuff. We can live in it in all the ordinary business of life in a way that honors God and brings blessing to the communities that we live in, that displays the goodness of, foretaste of the goodness of God's coming kingdom. This world we live in, in its present form, is a good world made by God. But we also know that it is not forever. This current world, or more particularly, the present form in which it is configured and arranged, is passing away. We are the people who know that. We are the people who have glimpsed the resurrection and the renewal of all things. We are the people upon whom the spirit of the coming age has been poured out. We are the messianic community. We know that the world in its present form is passing away. We are the people who have a stake and a share in the age to come. And so as Christians, we are called by the gospel of Jesus and empowered by the spirit poured into our hearts to live out in the sight of the world before our families and our neighbours and our friends and our colleagues, called to live out a strange, paradoxical, alien, countercultural, beautiful existence. We love but not as those who expect their friendships and their romances to carry the weight of their whole quest for meaning. We marry, perhaps, and give in marriage, but not as those who think that marriage is the kind of happily ever after and who feel cheated when it's harder and more complicated than that. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We buy things, but not like those who think that their possessions are theirs to keep. We use the things of this world, but not as those who are engrossed in them. We own possessions, but we're not owned by our possessions. We're not contained and controlled and defined by the things we consume and the labels that we wear. We live in this world as citizens of a better world to come. Do you see? And our call as Christians is not just to sing about that on Sunday, but to show that and to live that, to display the beauty of that every day of the week and every hour of the day. That's what we're called to in the gospel of Jesus. Nothing less than that, to live as an outpost, an outpost 
of the empire of the coming kingdom of God. And for each of us, in beautiful and variegated ways, for each of us, the details of what that looks like will be a little bit different. That's what Paul's mapping out in all the details of the example paragraphs in the rest of this chapter. I don't know what the detail of how you live out that difference and the foretaste of the coming kingdom, I don't know what that'll look like in precise detail for each of us in each of our different situations. For the Corinthians, um, Paul spells out across the various chapters of this letter some examples of the different things that it might involve depending on your gifts, depending on your responsibilities, depending on your relationships, depending on your temperament, depending on your circumstances. Some of the, perhaps it might look like this, and it will definitely look like that, variables um, of the different life situations of the Corinthians um, as they live out this mentality, in particular in relation to questions of marriage and singleness. And in the remaining paragraphs of the chapter, he returns to that kind of task thinking out a few more examples of what it might look like for different subgroups within the congregation. For the not yet married members of the Corinthian church to whom Paul turns in verse 26, Paul encourages them to be realistic, therefore, about the complications and responsibilities that you take on. Don't make no mistake about this. When you commit to marriage and parenting, it's not the happily ever after last five minutes of the rom-com. Yep. It's the beginning, marriage is the beginning of the long and complicated and beautiful and sometimes terrible journey that you commit to for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. Yep. That's what you sign up for. The interests of a married person and the desires of a married person are therefore legitimately, necessarily, inevitably divided as Paul puts it, verses 32 to 35. This is not a sinful thing. It's just an unavoidable reality. There will inevitably be points at which you, if you're a married believer, and even more points if you're a married believer whom God has blessed with the gift of children, there will inevitably come points in your life at which the particular urgent life in the last days as the gospel goes out to the nation's task of proclaiming the coming kingdom of God into all the ends of the earth and building up the church will pull against the responsibilities of home and family. Inevitably, you will feel tension, you'll feel stretched like a rubber band between the priorities of caring for those closest to you whom God has entrusted to your care and pouring out your lives together as a family into the service of the, the mission of the gospel. You'll feel that it's not, a, it's not a comfortable balance. It's a stretched like a rubber band kind of feeling. In such a circumstances, a married person who rightly, rightly, wants to please his wife or please her husband, as Paul puts it, who is also devoted to the Lord Jesus as their primary allegiance and therefore longs to see the gospel proclaimed in all the hardest and darkest places of the world, who longs to see the mission of God extend till the whole earth is flooded with the knowledge of the glory of God, 
will inevitably feel painfully divided, torn, making difficult decisions. If you're not yet married and you're contemplating marriage, you need to think carefully together about that before you commit to that path. If you commit to Christian marriage, you're committing not to a little cocoon of domestic tranquility in a commuter belt suburb somewhere, decorating a beautiful house and waiting till Jesus comes back one day. You're committing to something much more beautiful, much more arduous, much more risky, much more wonderful than that. You're committing to a shoulder-to-shoulder marriage in which you venture out into a dark and needy world together partnering in the service of the gospel, steering your little boat with whatever kids God might bless you with through the stormy seas of life in the last days, looking for ways in which your little family can be part of the big story of the spread of the gospel in a dark world in these shortened times in the rough seas of life till Christ returns. Do you see? That's a risky venture. That comes with cost. That comes with divided interests, tricky decisions, tough priority choices to make. If you're getting married as a Christian, then marry with your eyes open to that big, difficult, dangerous, beautiful, risky mission that you're venturing out on together as you embark on that journey in the same boat. Think about it carefully before you commit to that path. You don't get to tap out of the game. You just buckle up together and say, we're going to have to do this together and it's going to be hard and we're going to have some tough responsibilities to manage and priorities to juggle here. And therefore, verses 36 to 38, and the version on the screen is from the one we heard a moment ago from the Christian Standard Bible which translates these verses I think much better than the NIV that I've been putting on the slides previously Uh, therefore there will be some people for whom marriage is the right path and others for whom staying single is the better option you have to decide based on your particular temperament suitability circumstances responsibilities social situation gifts, ministry, calling, etc. There'll be difficult, big decisions to make and to make together. Uh, And for those who've been widowed as well, verses 39 to 40, the same thing goes. Uh, With the proviso, Paul says explicitly here, but I think is implicit everywhere else in the chapter that of course, of course, if you're going to get married, then it should definitely be Uh, If you get a choice about entering into marriage, this should definitely be to a fellow believer. Uh, How on earth do you throw yourself into the life of serving Christ together if one of you isn't serving Christ? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Now, earlier in the chapter, of course, Paul's not unsaying what he said earlier. If you're already married and your partner's not a believer, then stay faithful. But if you've got a choice about this, why on earth would you choose uh, to embark on that journey of following Christ together with a partner who isn't following Christ? Christ and Paul could of course go on to all kinds of other worked examples but these are the ones that he's focusing on in this chapter because he's responding to these kinds of questions that the Corinthians had been discussing for each of us you see for each of us the particular implications of the mindset Paul described back in verses 29 to 31 will be different 
And the basic principles of living out that mindset, the basic principles extend far beyond the particular issues of marriage and singleness and remarriage and kids and so on. For all of us, the mindset Paul is speaking about is one that applies to all the decisions and habits and practices and structures of life. It applies as we think about the hours that we work, uh, the positions that we serve in, the jobs that we seek employment in, the relationships we invest in, the things we buy, the holidays we go on, and so on. For each of us, the details will be different. But for none of us, I suspect, for none of us will it mean unthinkingly conforming the shape of our lives to the pattern of the standard ways of doing things in 21st century Sydney. That is not a life of discipleship. Ordinary, everyday, non-Christian Sydney lifestyle Monday to Saturday and then sing a few songs about Jesus on Sunday. That is not what we've been called to. Ordinary life as lived in 21st century Sydney, that way of life is not forever. The world in its present form is passing away and our opportunity and our challenge as we plan ahead for each new year and as we think and pray about each new life decision. Our opportunity and our challenge is to live a little more differently, a little more distinctively, to anticipate a little more vividly the life of the age to come. Do you see? Let's pray that God will enable us and empower us to make the most of that chance. Let's pray. Father, in all things, we want to exalt the name of your son, the Lord Jesus, to magnify his name and his glory, to show by the way we live our lives that he is more precious to us than anything in this world. And so we pray that you would give to us the wisdom and the resolve and the courage to do everything and risk everything for the sake of Jesus and his gospel and for the display of the beauty of your coming kingdom. So help us, we pray, as we think through decisions about career and ministry and calling, about the life you've called us to lay down, about the things we will leave behind to follow Jesus, the careers we'll step away from to throw ourselves into the work of the gospel, um, the decisions about marriage and singleness, the way we think about the forming and the training and the educating and the bringing up of any children you give to us to raise. In all the details of life, we pray, make us people who don't just say and study and sing about the idea of the Lordship of Jesus, but who show it, imprinted on the pattern of our lives. Give us the resolve, we pray, and the vision and the wisdom to live that out for Jesus' sake and for his glory.